Welcome to the Murder Lab podcast, where I don't just discuss one serial killer per episode, I discuss a bunch of serial killers and what they have in common. Today, for example, we'll talk about serial killers who owned rooming houses that killed their tenants. And when I say we, since I'm a queen, it is the royal we. So just roll with it. So the first one I'm going to talk about is Amy Archer Gilligan. Uh, Her activity was mainly between 1911 to 1916. There were 48 murders. She was about 35-ish years old. This was in Connecticut. And to give you an idea of the scene, the, at this point, there were no, like, established nursing homes. There were a few of them, but they weren't, like, um, the way that we see them now where there are networks of them and they have rules and regulations. It was more informal. So um, Amy Archer had uh, started a home with her uh, husband at the time. So they had this house and they rented rooms out to elderly people. And the idea was basically you could rent the room by a month or you could give her $1,000 and stay there for the rest of your life. So by all appearances, she seemed to be a nice, above-board, charitable Christian woman. As a matter of fact, uh, people referred to her as Sister Amy because she was often seen with her Bible. And uh, then her first husband died unexpectedly. Then some of her tenants started dropping off. She got remarried. And then her second husband died out of nowhere. And people kind of started getting suspicious. And even though... She seemed like such a charitable person, such a Christian person. It was really hard to refute all these people dying. Now, even one of her friends, her closest friends, he happened to be a newspaper reporter. He was very leery of the whole thing. He really was surprised at at the thought that she could have possibly done anything like that. But once he started looking into it, he could not deny it was weird. So um, it seems as though... She would, uh, she used arsenic to dispose of them. Now, there were records of not just her going to get arsenic. Uh, Now, keep in mind that during this time period, they would use arsenic as a rat poison. So it was, you could buy it, but you really didn't need a whole lot of it. And the amounts that she was buying were like stupid. So it had to be like arachnophobia times 10 at her house for her to have to justify getting all this arsenic. And what was really interesting is when they started to dig into it, they found that it wasn't just her that was going to get the arsenic. She would have one of her tenants go and get the arsenic and they would wind up dying a few days later. So that's like a whole new level uh, of uh, psychosis there or uh, sociopathic behavior is actually sending your victim out to get the poison you're going to kill them with. Basically, the way that they would die, it would seem as though it was from arsenic poisoning. She eventually was caught and arrested. Unfortunately, you know, because of forensics and it was difficult to prove a lot of the murders. But to give you an idea is of the existing nursing homes. So in this time period, eight people would die in a regular nursing home. 48 people died in Amy Archer Gilligan's nursing home. So that is just way above and beyond. And what's also interesting is she had a doctor that worked for her that would come and sign the death certificates and help her take care of her tenants. And 
he was negligent at best. So, like, for example, when her second husband was dying, he was he just got really sick out of nowhere. So she called the doctor and he's like, okay, we'll just give him these tablets and, you know, every hour and he'll be fine. He'll recover. No big deal. So the next day she calls him and she's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going to die. And the dude dies. So the doctor's like, um, thought my instructions were pretty simple. Not sure why he died, but okay. She's sister Amy. She couldn't have done anything wrong. So he just signed the death certificate. But he was so adamant that he did nothing wrong and that she did nothing wrong to the point where when during the trial, he claimed that she was framed. Like he just believed she was framed. Now, Amy herself swore up and down she did nothing wrong. And she would get righteously indignant to the point where she would curse people. She would actually put curses like, I hope God curses you with terrible things and I hope you die. Because I'm this, you know, God-loving woman who has done nothing wrong. But she would also be caught lying. Although she would never bow to it. She would just always have something to say about it. She would always have excuses. It's almost like she really, truly believed that what she was doing was okay. Um, she knew, had to know it was wrong, but it was like she felt justified in it. Um, I think there was an element of, she was also a woman basically living on her own in a time period when that wasn't really a thing. So I know some of the community looked up to her as like, you know, women's rights, you know, feminist is she should be someone that should be applauded for not having to have a man and run this business. And I really think that there was an element of she wanted to be self-sufficient. You know, she would do whatever it took to be self-sufficient, whether it meant wiping out people or not. It's a very interesting case. Uh, I strongly urge you to read The Devil's Rooming House by M. William Phelps. It is very interesting and it really goes into details. It gives specifics on some of the victims and, and the details. I did not see any reference of direct nicknames given to her, but I did see that her facility was referred to as the Murder Factory at a certain point. So basically, that's Amy Archer Gilligan. Now, to go on to another female serial killer that had a rooming house, we have Dorothea Puente. Her activity was primarily between like 1986 or 87 to 1988. There were nine bodies found in her yard, and there were 12 people supposedly that disappeared that weren't accounted for. Um, it was in California, and she was about 59 years old. Dorothea Puente was arrested for forging checks. She ran a halfway house at one point, which did not end well. She actually ended up doing time for drugging someone and taking their money. When she got out of prison, she decided she kind of uh, went through a bunch of phases and uh, where she tried business models out. So then when she got out, she was it was illegal for her to have a boarding house. But she was, you know, she basically a lot like Amy Archer Gilligan. She was going to do what she was going to do on her terms. So she started an illegal boarding house. And her key was she would take people that the state wouldn't take. While legal organizations, um, it would be difficult for them to take uh, these like elderly and mentally challenged and specifically um, alcoholics that were unruly, that were difficult for them to take or if they were overwhelmed. They knew that Dorothea would take people in, so they'd just give them to her. And she seemed so sweet 
And, you know, she had this nice garden. She would do charitable work. So she was a lot like Amy Archer Gilligan, where she would do charity and just seemed really above board and very honest and open. And plus, you know, since she was like, you know, in her late 50s and she did have white hair, she just seemed like this perfect little granny loving figure. Um, But eventually a social worker realized that one of her charges were went missing so they kept asking Dorothea about it, like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And, uh, and then in the meantime, other people were like, this is kind of stinky around here. What's going on? And they finally discovered, OK, we need to see what's going on. And they found a body in the yard, buried in the yard in a shallow grave. So then they wound up digging and finding seven bodies in her yard. And again, like Amy Archer Gilligan, she swore up and down she had nothing to do with the bodies. Now, it did also turn out that she was taking their Social Security checks. So they, through this big investigation, they discovered she was forging their Social Security checks. Even people that she didn't kill, she was caught forging some of their checks. It seemed as though she would kill the ones that were troublesome or had, you know, had like family that might get in her way. The way that she would do it is there was a specific sedative that she would give people and it by itself was not lethal, but in combination with alcohol, it basically what it would do is if they were infirm, if they were sickly or super old or whatever, and she would give them that combination, it's likely that she could have suffocated them at that point without it looking like they were strangled. But all of the bodies had the same. Now I can't think of what exactly the name of the thing was, but she had a very specific thing that she used and they all of the bodies had that in them. So she was initially caught when they were looking for that, the uh, disappearing, disappearing, hey, making up words, the disappeared person. Uh, But she got away before they had a chance to actually arrest her when they were still digging, trying to get enough evidence to actually take her into, you know, for questioning and stuff. She got away. But when she ran, she found this dude and she's like, hey, how you doing? You know, like she's thinking he looks old. He's got some stuff wrong with him. And then he slips and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm sick and I'm on Social Security. And she's like, well, hey, why don't we move in together? You know, we've known each other two minutes. We've been drinking together. Why not? And he was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. And then he's like, God, there's something really familiar about her. And then he realizes, oh, he saw her on the news. And it turns out he recognized her as being on the run from looking like she killed all these people. So he actually turned her in. That's how she officially got caught. She was known as the Death House Landlady. You can get more information on her from The Bone Garden. The Bone Garden by William P. Wood. It was a very interesting read, um, so I highly recommend that as well. And we will be discussing her more in different episodes. Um, That's the idea of this whole thing is she was also, for example, married several times. There's a whole bunch of other information about her. So when I do another one on maybe serial killers that had multiple marriages, we may delve into her some more. So, So we'll discover bits and pieces about these different serial killers in different episodes. So you probably have not heard the last of Dorothea Puente. And now we will go on to Carl Denke, who was active 1921 to 1924. 
Now, it's possible he killed before then, but I'm going to focus primarily on the boarding room aspect of the murders. There seem to be 31 Vicks, uh, possibly 41 or more total. Uh, there are 31 that are known about. It was in Poland, near the border of Germany, and he was about 64 years old when he was caught. So to give you a picture of where we're at in this time period is, like I said, it was Poland on the like German border, and it was a time period, it was 1920s. There were food shortages, there was inflation by Germany, so it was a very desperate, desolate time period. Karl Denke, he had a shop that he sold meat, suspenders, belts, laces, that kind of thing. He rented two rooms out. He was well-known around the neighborhood and by his tenants, and they called him Papa. Aww. Uh, so he was popular, uh, similar to Amy and Dorothea. He was known to be a, a religious man. He was a church organist, very well-liked. So uh, it was very surprising when... Someone was passing by and they saw a tenant running out of the house with a bloody head and, you know, said, Papa just tried to kill me. When Papa was hauled in by the cops, he said, yeah, 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 I did try to kill him, but I thought he was an intruder. They decide they're going to take a look around his house and see what's up. And in the meantime, he kills himself in his cell. Now, there is not a whole lot of information that I have found on Carl Denke, um, but I have found a couple accounts that said he hanged himself with a handkerchief. There are other where it says that he hanged himself with his suspenders. Now, I don't know how easy it would be to hang yourself with a handkerchief. It would have to be pretty big, right? So suspenders makes more sense to me, but I'll leave that information out there for you. So, um, so they're like, okay, why did he kill himself? Now, when they search his house, they did discover why, indeed. They found... IDs of a bunch of his tenants and clothes, which may not seem like such a big deal. But then they found tubs with human meat. Some of it was cooked in cream sauce. So they don't have absolute proof that he necessarily ate it. But uh, since they were cooked in cream sauce, and I believe one of the portions was gone, they kind of figured eh, he was probably eating him some meat. Um, they think it's possible he sold the meat in the store as well, possibly to other people. Uh, they also found a ledger with names, dates, and weights of his borders. And uh, the borders included salespeople, beggars, tramps, you know, people that it would be easy to disappear. There were male and female. Some of the bodies were found in the forest. They uh, found bones, like 351 teeth. Some were in a money bag. Some were stored in a tin, partially sorted. I do think it's interesting that in when I was reading the uh, the crime scene report or whatever, uh, that someone noted that one of the bodies had a quote unquote very clean anus. So that's a feather in his cap. I, I don't know. I'm really not sure why that was so important that it needed to go into the crime report. And but you know it uh, it broke up the reading. It made it real interesting. You know, it's not often when you see very clean anus in what you're reading. Oh, I don't know. Maybe it is. I guess I am reading about serial killers. Nothing should surprise me. I think what's interesting to note is because it was such a desolate time period and so desperate that I'm not saying it's okay that because you're hungry, you should kill people. <laughs> so that's, you know, not what I'm saying. But 
if you have the right temperament, if all of the ingredients are right and you have the right disposition that you can survive by killing people and eating their meat and then using their clothes, this may have been the way that he chose to survive that time period. And who knows, maybe he did sell some of the meat to people and maybe they didn't really ask questions because they were hungry too. And they, you know, I mean, you wouldn't think dude's going to sell human meat at a store, like no matter how desperate it was. So I don't know. Again, that's conjecture. As far as I can see, there wasn't proof that he sold human meat, but it's still, you know, interesting. Some of his nicknames were the mass murderer of Munsterberg, the forgotten cannibal, and I meant to look up how to pronounce this, the cannibal of Zebis, Z-I-E-B-I-C-E. So it's one of those cases where um, it was, the city was called one thing, and then they called it another. So at one point it was called Zebis, Zebis, and then later it was called Munsterberg. Now, um, the book that I was so excited about. So like I said, I was having trouble finding a lot of material on Carl Denke. I was excited when I came across an actual book. Most of it were blurbs and the encyclopedias that I got and, you know, online. Um, But I found a book and I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. So, (sighs) dear, dear listener, please heed my warning. Whenever you purchase something, just really look at the details. Because had I looked at how long the book was, I would have known better than to spend any kind of money on it. It is like, I believe I counted like 39 pages double-spaced, in some case quadruple-spaced, and it's I'm pretty sure it was written by a seventh grader for a fifth grader. So that was exciting. Um, <laughs> and uh, the other interesting thing is half the book is really just that police report that I, uh, that I had referred to earlier. I had found it, I believe, on Murderpedia, where it was an accounting of what the police actually officially reported they found at the uh, residence. And that's basically just half of this book. So really, the person just wrote like 10 pages. And again, it was stuff that I just could have found elsewhere. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what the book is. So just avoid it. Don't spend money on it. It was Cannibal, The True Story of Carl Denke by Nathan Hayes. Now, I've noticed that in my searches for other books... The cover seems like it might actually be part of a series, so I'll have to post a picture and maybe just just be wary of what you purchase and what you trust. Uh, in general, though, I mean, the information in it does seem to match the other things, and I've pointed out the stuff that didn't really match, you know, like the suspenders and the handkerchief and that kind of thing. So, um, so Carl Denke, um, he's another uh, interesting one I'm sure we'll be hearing more about. Next, we are on to Burke and Hare. In 1827 and 1828 in Scotland, they had 16 victims. Burke was about 36 years old, and Hare claimed to be 21 years old at the time of capture. So this time period was hard to find bodies for medical study. So basically... Grave robbing became a thing because uh, colleges um, and doctors were very desperate for bodies to dissect and analyze. And, you know, it was really trying to delve into the human body and figure out all that stuff. So (laughs) it was hard to get them. Now, Burke and Hare were not grave robbers. That is a commonly uh, a common misnomer, I guess. They were not grave robbers. 
so Hare's wife had a boarding house, and they became friends with Burke and his wife. So one of the boarders was sick and old, and he actually died, owing the money, basically. Then they were like, hey, you know, they need bodies. Maybe we can sell his body to someone that needs bodies and then get some money, the money that he owes us, because that seems fair, right? So they uh, connected with the doctor and sold him the body. He didn't ask questions and uh, became a beautiful partnership. So um, the first, it seems like the first couple were already sick and like basically on their way out, they were like, well, you know, I'm going to die anyway, so maybe we should help them along. So they'd get them drunk and then smother them. And this led to a verb being created based on the way they would kill. It became known as burking or to burk, where hair would cover the mouth and nose of the victim and burke would lay across the body. That way, when they suffocated, it wasn't obvious, especially since that was a time period where they didn't really have a lot of forensics and in-depth you know, analysis of such things. It wasn't obvious that they were killed. So it was actually kind of ingenious, and that was the way that they chose to dispose of their victims. So they did this to a few of the tenants. They eventually had to actually start luring people in. But what caused their demise was one of the boarders found a body. They hid a body under straw on a bed. And then someone else stayed in the place, was like, why are they like wanting me to stay out of this room? This is supposed to be a room that I'm using and they're not really letting me in there. When Burke and Hare were distracted, they go in there and they found the body. That is how their empire crashed. And then Hare turned on Burke and basically got immunity. Burke got killed. I believe he was hanged. And then the grand irony is that they gave his body to anatomists for study. So that, if that is not poetic justice, I don't know what is. If you would like more information, you can go to The Anatomy Murders by Lisa Rosner. Next up, we have H.H. H. Holmes, 1886 to 1894 in Chicago. There were 27 verified victims there could be 50 or more. Some reports think maybe up to 200. We will never know for sure. We're just going to mention him real quickly because I'm actually going to go into more detail in the next episode. He built a hotel where he had businesses on the first floor and the second and third floors he rented out rooms, which was perfect because at that point in Chicago, it was the World's Fair. So he got lots of people that he could um, have, you know, stay at his place. It was called The Castle because it was so big and lavish. And you will have to stay tuned to the next episode because next episode we will go into detail about what all that castle entailed and how he killed his victims and such. So we'll do deep dive into that one and you'll be real excited to hear about that. It's uh, very interesting. I did get material from that from The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, which uh, I will talk about more in the next episode. We'll do uh, just a couple little quick ones. Because there are a few serial killers that did kill tenants, but it wasn't their primary target. For example, George Sack in 1920s Seattle, he bought an apartment block and he happened to have a tenant that was beaten to death. Now, there was no evidence linking him, 
But since he was a serial killer, I don't know. So we'll throw him out there. George Sack uh, possibly killed one of his tenants. There was Martha Marek in the 1930s in Austria. She had a room she let out to rent. There was a woman that she let rent the room. She convinced the woman to take out an insurance policy and name her as the one who would inherit the money. Magically, she died. And the son was suspicious. There was an autopsy done. And voila, she was poisoned. So she apparently pulled a Amy Archer Gilligan or Dorothea Puente and killed her tenant. There's one other serial killer. Now, technically, he did not kill the tenant. But it's still interesting to note. So Gary Heidnick, which we'll definitely cover. And we're actually going to mention him in the next episode. Gary Heidnick in 1976 in Pennsylvania. He rented two floors to tenants. And at one period, he turned off the electricity, he shut it off, went down to the basement with his guns. I think he had a gun and a rifle and was like, hey, come on at me. If you, if you want to try to turn this power back on, come get me. I got a gun. One of the tenants actually came in through the window. Uh, Heidnik shot at him and the dude got superficial face wounds. So didn't die, didn't really even get hurt. Uh, the charges were dismissed. So that was kind of a blip in Her Gary Heidnick's radar, which compares nothing to what he wound up doing later, which we will discuss next week. Finally, we are going to flip it. And instead of discussing a landlord or landlady that killed their tenants, I'm going to tell you about Earl Leonard Nelson, who actually killed landladies. Between 1926 to 1927, uh, it was through several states. He's actually known as the first American sex serial killer of the 20th century. There were 22 victims, most of them landladies. They were strangled and then raped. Uh, some of them he did actually beat or bludgeon. It's interesting. He, Some of them he actually tucked under a bed. Uh, one was hidden in a trunk. And there was another one stuffed behind a furnace. Now, primarily the reason that he would choose landladies, it seems as though it's because they were easier access. So, for example, you know, they would have a sign in the window, room for rent, or there'd be an ad in the paper. So he could just go and either pretend like he wants this room. And, you know, generally it would be a woman alone. And then he would kill her. Or he would actually rent a room. Everything would seem okay. He was charming. Again, he had that Bible advantage. He would quote the Bible. He was very religious. Um, he seemed just very charming and sociable, and people felt disarmed around him. They didn't feel threatened. And then he would kill someone. It was a very interesting pattern because sometimes he would stay at a place and not kill them, and then other times he would kill them. So it seems like he went through phases when it would, uh, you know, the urge would come. Now, one of the things that confused me in my research is primarily when I would look at, you know, I mentioned blurbs in their several serial killer encyclopedias or just when there are short paragraphs of information, they would all talk about how he's called the gorilla man. And a lot of times they would mention his appearance. When I saw pictures of him, I didn't really think he looked too much like a gorilla. And it's interesting because when I found the book Bestial by Harold Schechter, it's very obvious Harold Schechter knows his stuff. So he obviously does lots of research. He's written a ton of books. I highly recommend him anything he does. And it's obvious that he does a lot of research and work. So he explains that the gorilla man actually comes from 
If you're familiar with Edgar Allan Poe, The Murders at the Rue Morgue. So someone is going around strangling these women. Some of them were stuffed up in a chimney. And it turns out that it was an orangutan. As I mentioned before, when some of his victims were found stuffed under a bed or in a trunk or behind a furnace, and the sheer brute strength it took to strangle them, people started to call him the Gorilla Man. The reference began really as comparing him to that Edgar Allan Poe story and not really about his physical features. It's more about that brute strength and that connection to the literary, um, you know. It seems as though the uh, the states didn't really use the Gorilla Man as, as much. Some of the nicknames they used was Jack the Strangler, of course. Uh, Dark Strangler was a, a big one. Phantom Strangler, sorry, Phantom Killer. And Beast Man. But in Canada, one of his last victims was actually in Canada. In Canada, a reporter overheard some girls talking and one girl said something about the gorilla man and the reporter overheard it and so in Canada it seems like that's where it really exploded him being called the gorilla man so again bestial Harold Schechter I highly recommend and uh, I will be talking more about Earl Leonard Nelson in the future so uh, stay tuned for more Murder Lab